Welcome everybody to the Saturday session on the 8th of December 2018. It's now officially summer. It feels like summer. We'll just start by closing our eyes and centering ourselves, centering the awareness. They say that meditation is the process of reversing the flow of attention, the flow of awareness, from the inside out, which it normally does, to back onto itself. So we're reversing the flow of awareness so that the awareness is flowing inwards. See if you can capture that feeling. Firstly, the awareness as a flow of attention. Feel the awareness as a flow, continuous flow. And then as you direct that flow of awareness to the internal condition, the inner state, you might focus on a particular part of the body, the heart region, the center of the chest, or the space between the eyebrows. allow the awareness to just effortlessly flow. Hold it very lightly at these points, one of these points, or perhaps on the breath, any internal process will suffice. You notice that the awareness then begins to disengage with the external world. Although it's still evident at the periphery. By the effortless return of the awareness to the inner condition. then the capacity of external stimuli to captivate and hold your attention is reduced. Notice I use the word effortless. This should be a very easy process. The natural condition, the underlying condition of the mind is actually peace. That's its native state, you could say. Thoughts are an overlay or a construct. 
that sit on top of this ground state. So when we return the awareness to the ground state itself, the state of peace that underlies thought, and we do it in a way that is effortless, then the thoughts lose their power to hijack our awareness and we get some relief or release and it's the return to this underlying state of peace that is so fundamentally enriching, healing and restoring to our sense of completeness. If thoughts come, we just return the awareness very easily to the underlying state of peace that sits beneath the thoughts or between the thoughts, behind the thoughts. Do you feel it, this state of peace? to recognize it as yourself. Do you feel it welcome you back into itself? condition of self is non-judgmental and accepting. It exists without precondition or qualification. There's no limit on it. In that sense you could say it's infinite. The way that you know that it's infinite, or that you could believe that it's infinite, is that when you surrender awareness into this state, and move deeper within it, you'll come to see that it has no boundary or no limit. It's as if there's an internal universe within you. So that release of the awareness into this state brings about a process where the state itself does the work. The transformation occurs by virtue of the power of the state, 
not by virtue of anything that you do. So it's the act of surrender to the inner state of peace. That is the practice. Release the resistance. Release the fear. Release opinions. Concepts. These are all products of mind, but now we're moving beyond mind into stillness. And just take a few minutes by yourself to just explore that state, that space. Now bring the awareness back to the body, <coughs> to the breath. <coughs> Though your eyes remain closed, you can become aware of the sensations within the room, sounds. breeze, 
and very easily you can then begin to open the eyes. But I want you to try and maintain this inner awareness, this inner, the connection with the inner state. So as the eyes begin to open, you still feel though, as though part of you is immersed into an internal state of peace. And as you look around the room, try and hold a sense of neutrality. You observe passive, passively without labeling things, objects. Just observe it all, it's just a projection. It's interesting, you can try this sometimes, just watch. When you don't attach labels to things, they lose their power to captivate you. You just observe passively without judgment, without predilection, or as they say, beyond pairs of opposites of attraction and aversion. No attraction, no aversion. Just a passive observation of what is. And if you do this, it's easy to maintain the connection with the inner stillness. You begin to live from that state where engagement is optional. You're no longer a victim of circumstances. All of this is just life unfolding in front of you. Perhaps without any reason at all. Just because it does. Do you think that's possible? Things just are? Does there have to be a reason for anything? What is it that wants the re what is it that asks why? Mm -hmm. Well, it could be that. What more generally, what is it that asks why? It's an inquisitiveness to know. But where does that come from? And what what a, what aspect of our being? The mind. The mind. It's purely a function of mind. Mind wants to know why. What's the meaning? What did that mean? We often say, don't we? But what does it mean? <laughs> what if it doesn't mean anything? I mean, it's clearly things, at some level, things have meaning. At the level of mind, things have meaning. But at the level of meta mind, beyond mind, in the transcendent state, is, does meaning even have any currency? Does, it, does, it some, does something need to have a meaning in order that you can just accept it as it is? I just feel like um, some things don't need meaning mm -hmm. and other things, then there has to be a process of figuring out why. 
why and so on. But what's doing that? Yeah, so let's accept that at the functional level of mind, you'd need to get into all of that. We're not arguing that mind hasn't got a function. And at that level of manifestation, that's all true. Those laws are true. Cause and effect is true. Um, but I'm talking about another from another perspective. From the perspective of the internal state, the observer, that which just sees. Why does anything need to mean anything? Does anything change if something means X rather than Y? Does the state change? And outer things are ever changing. Outer things are always changing. But if you give up the search for Y, what, what liberation is that? Immediately you're off the hook. Because you're not... You, you, the, you know the, the rat that runs on the treadmill and eventually it dies of exhaustion? Sometimes we, you just accept it that's the way it is, it's liberating. It's very liberating. And then you're not exhausted by all that Precisely. mental stuff. Precisely, that's the whole point of the discussion is that libera we're talking about liberation ultimately. What are, what's, what are we being liberated from? It's from the... It's the treadmill or the hamster wheel of the mind. Do you know that saying? They say that um, the, the wheel's still turning, but the hamster's gone. <laughs> the lights are on, but nobody's home. I mean, that's sort of where we, we're getting to with this, is that there's still observation, but there's no longer clinging, there's no longer um, entrapment and so therefore we're liberated. And then if you could carry that state as the default state, that's where, let's say that became your default state. That's where, what, where you are most of the time. Except when you need to engage, and then, like I said in that guided process, it becomes optional. You can choose then when you're going to engage and when you're not going to engage. Whereas, what's the normal situation? Always. We feel bound to engage. And that's, that's bondage. Especially when you um, have really challenging events in your life mm -hmm. and, you, and it becomes all-encompassing mm -hmm. to understand why can sort of the average everyday living can go along with the challenge is to be able to get there when most challenging things. Yeah, that's right. And what happens then when you can do that? Um, you, you're not tortured anymore. Right. I think you become clearer in your intentions as well. You're, if you're not engaged in everything, you can use your mind to focus on something very clearly. Yeah, in, that's right. Without all the noise going on, the mind becomes very powerful instrument actually becomes honed. It's like sharpening a knife. You know, if it's not used all the time, it retains its sharpness. And you can go in and act 
incisively to continue the metaphor <laughs> do what needs to be done and then return to the state so you're just engaging on your terms that's empowerment that way you can hold the power so the thing is we get a lot of power from meditating but then we go out and we lose it we blow it do you ever find that that you're meditating and at least initially you feel good and then there'll be an argument or something will happen and you'll and then you'll be angry with yourself because you lost what, what you had the peace but over time you learn to can learn how to conserve the peace you build it and you bank it and you don't fritter it away so you become more judicious about how you spend your energy and so that means as Kalyani was saying that the intention becomes so much clearer and more powerful that you can apply and you actually that was what I was going to say you're a more effective person so this is the this is sort of the fallacy that they think that meditation turns you into some sort of wimp or some sort of um, non non participant. Yeah. 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 That's the opposite, Whereas in fact, when we see yogis, yeah. they can I mean they can literally move mountains using the power of the mind. You don't get that through constant engagement of the senses with everything that's moving out there. You get it through withdrawal immersion into the infinite state where all the power is and then you uh, entrench that power and then you can access it and if the mind is very strong and still and focused you can apply it like a like a weapon or not necessarily a weapon in a negative way but in a as a tool let's say as a tool you know what a tool is not a person. I gave a talk at the beginning. But we don't make judgments in our <laughs> No, that's right. Put aside all those people. But um, I had to give a talk this year at a um, symposium of quantum physicists. And, we were, and I was talking about the human dimension of technology and how we always have to remember that technology is our servant and not our master and that's always a risk you know when you're dealing with quantum physics or nuclear physics you know we're now tampering with processes that can literally you know just tear apart the planet and so the, there's an ethical dimension to this around what is the appropriate use of this force do you know the story of the sorcerer's apprentice sorcerer's apprentice where he steals the magician's wand and suddenly it's, he doesn't know how to use it and everything's out of control and he conjures up all these demons or something and then the sorcerer has to come back in and take control because if you're using technology that is not uh, subservient to you then there are the consequences can be disastrous um, so equally the mind is a technology in that sense, it's a tool. Ah, so just to return to the talk, I was using um, images to show the history of tools. Not all of them, but just a selection of different, um, let's use the word mechanical devices, just to avoid the confusion here. So I had a, um, a microscope 
so an image of a microscope. And what does a microscope enable you to do? It gives you superhuman vision, vision beyond your normal capability. So you can see all the way down potentially to atoms with an electron microscope. And then I showed a picture of a pair of pliers. And what do pliers enable you to do? Not just control, but also force, mm. right? The pliers are what they call a force multiplier because of the fulcrum principle, mm. that the handles are longer than the end bit, and so it multiplies the force. So it gives you superhuman strength. You could never take a nut off a tight nut with your fingers, mm. but with pliers it's easy. And so all the technology that we've ever developed is there to amplify basic human capability, like the internet as well, as having worked in the industry, we've seen the revolution that's occurred. And what is it? What is it amplifying? It's the power of communication. And in fact, when I went to the U.S. in the at the beginning of the internet, as we know it. I went to uh, view the next generation of the internet that hasn't really come yet, called the, the Internet 2, the Abilene project. We're seeing it now with the Internet of Things devices. And it's the ability to move things using the internet. Remotely, radio telescopes, massive dishes, or trains, or irrigation systems, anything we can control remotely now, right? So the internet is another technology that, and that gives us, an, and I did say at the time that I thought there were three aspects of the internet that I think we are being drawn to. And that's the ability to know everything. And we traditionally we call that omniscience and it's the ability to uh, be present in a remote location and we call that omnipresence. And then there's the ability to move or create change at in, in wherever we are in distant locations and that's called omnipotence. To be able to exert power beyond ourselves, is omnipotence, everywhere. So, what are we really doing with technology? We're seeking these divine attributes. <coughs> so the technology is the tool that is leading us beyond the limits of our humanity, of our human limitation, to, uh, to um, possibilities that would be beyond us normally. And so, by, I'm using this as an analogy to what we do in meditation where we are using the mind's potential to move outside of mind, to move to a greater state of power than the mind itself can uh, deliver, give to us. And that's the power of this, of consciousness itself. Pure consciousness beyond mind is all-powerful. You can call it God, or universal intelligence or whatever you want to call it.
but that's what we're tapping into. And so the constant immersion into that state, into our divine or godlike state, eventually we become divine and godlike. We take on the attributes of that we, which we immerse ourselves into. And, you know, I often use the metaphor, don't I, of the dying of the cloth. Do you remember? So if you want to dye cloth, actually we saw it on that video, we saw of dying of the leather. Uh, you immer but let's use cloth because it's probably a bit more politically correct. You're dyeing cloth into a solution of dye. It starts off as white or unbleached or whatever it is. And the more you dye it, the more that you dip it into the dye, each time you do it, it begins to take on the colour of the substance, of the dye itself. And then eventually it becomes indistinguishable from the colour of that which it was immersed into. Right? Or another way of a reverse analogy might be making a cup of tea with a tea bag, where you're immersing the tea into the water. The water takes on the attributes of the tea. Eventually the, the flavour is indistinguishable. You discard the tea bag, but now the essence of the tea is in the water. So what we're doing when we're immersing ourselves in the internal state is we take on the attributes of that state. What are those attributes? Well, actually, technically speaking, they don't have it. It is without attribute because it's impossible to the describe. Yeah, attribute implies that you can describe it using language. But the ultimate state is beyond attribute. But the characteristics of it that we might experience through mind, mind is the filter, that's all we have really to experience all of life is mind, senses. Mind interprets that state as infinite, all-powerful, beyond the senses, pure, pure peaceful. peaceful, blissful. All of those experiences are available to us because they are the fundamental characteristics, or at least it's, I'm making a distinction here, the state itself, it's a little bit hard to explain this because we're actually moving outside of what language can do. But if the state itself is beyond attribute, something is experiencing it as an experience. And what that experience is, is of all those qualities, you could say. So that's the feeling that we have. While there is still mind, now, I, I would imagine that, w in fact, I know that when you move outside of mind completely into these samadhi states, there's none of that. Emptiness. Yeah, there's mm. nothing. It's just the void. So, when I'm meditating, I can see the void and I sense the void. So mm -hmm. I can still, I feel it. So that if you're feeling it, then you're not it. That's right. Right. So there's yeah, still a degree. Still feel the sort of the bliss and it's the great. Of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's better than nothing. It's way better than <laughs> just about <laughs> anything. <laughs> but it's not it. No. Because for there to be an observer of the state means that you are not. You haven't fully yeah. merged with it. Yeah. And this is what Prakashananda used to say, one of our teachers. Oh, I knew. I knew. <laughs> He'd say it's better to be one step away from realization. 
because once you're fully re once you're merged there is no experience anymore the object the subject and the experience itself all collapse they merge into one so what happens then well then you're then you no longer exist so does that actually mean we've in our terms we've died or? you've died to yourself in, if you were still living in a body like say, take someone like Bhagavan Nichananda, who was the my, the teacher of our teach. This one there with his eyes closed. Right. So he was what's known as a, an avadhut. An avadhut is one who is beyond the normal experiences of mind body. Ident certainly of body mind identification, pretty much in any to any degree. He is basically fully immersed. I think an under my ma as well, you'd say. Go into extended periods of no body awareness at all. Into swoons, you know, where you'd lose it. And, and they would be just gone. Maybe in her state, the swoon state, it's probably still a very high bliss state. But in Bhagavan Nichananda's state, I think it's beyond anything that you could describe. So he's really in the absolute. So does he still yeah, well, that's right. Now he's walking around in a body, but he's, he doesn't regard that as him. He's more identified with that. This is just this thing. It's a bit like um, you're walking around with a handbag, but you're not the handbag. It's just something that's following you around. Right? So it's kind of like that. When you're in that perspective, this is just this thing that you know, is, is the vehicle for the soul in this embodiment. But you don't really pay much attention. He, you know, he was very unaware of his body. Um, you know, he'd often walk around naked or mostly naked. So it's not a state you can be in in society? No. No, no in India it's sort of more accepted because they see these guys walking around and they feel, they know that they're just other hoots. They're just, you know... Well, they're divine. They're, I mean, they're really in divine states, and no one, you know. Although in the biography of Nichananda, this is interesting. Um, so they're living on the edge of society. So there is a permissible sort of range of behaviours that society will enable them to engage in um, without causing any conflict. But they're beyond laws. They're beyond sort of any of the restrictions that we would. That's what an avidhood is. They're, they're unrestricted in that way. Um, and there was a story about when he... Um, I went and visited his ashram that he'd constructed in Kerala, in the south of India. And <coughs> it's a whole cave, artificial caves that he had dug into the rocks, into the mountain. And he was paying all these workers to um, dig, do the excavation. And they didn't know where he was getting the money from. No one knew. He'd just tell them at the end of the week. This is in the 1930s, right? Something like that, yeah. He would tell them at the end of the week, go look under that rock. And they'd go and the exact amount of money was there. It was like there's miracles are happening full on around this guy. And then one, then the British who was still administering, so it was prior to independence, still administering the region got wind that he was um, paying people with no obvious method of 
income. And so they, they thought maybe he was involved with counterfeiting. <laughs> they thought he had, might have had a press. Do you remember this story? Yeah, and so they finally they descended on his ashram. Hmm? The the British administrator. Yeah. Yeah, but he was accompanied by police officers, so they did a raid basically, and they were going to arrest him. But I think on a oh that's right, he led them into the jungle. He said, "You want to see where I'm getting the money from? Come and I'll show you." And he took him into the middle of this crocodile and tiger-infested jungle, and there was this big pond of like quicksand and water, and he jumps into that, and he, all he's wearing is the loincloth, and he starts pulling out handfuls of notes of money out of the water, and he goes, "This is where the money's from. Come and get. Do you want to arrest me? Come and arrest me." And then they realised that they were dealing with a saint, effectively, and they decided to leave him. And the British officer said, "Well, we shouldn't intervene here." And then the rest of the story is that as they're leaving to travel back down the road that they'd come down towards the ashram, there was a sign that had never been there before bearing the name of the British administrator, Gorn, Gorn Road. Yeah, so that just appeared almost as a blessing or something that um, they, they recognised him for what he was. So... Um, well, the, these are documented stories. I mean, um, I've, I've meditated in the caves. I've been there. I didn't see the money manifest. And then the other part of that story was when he first got there, there was no water. So he struck a stick, a rock with a stick, a staff, and then water just started coming out of the mountain. And you can walk, you can walk in the stream, sort of up to about there. And then they, they've got a big tank, and that feeds the whole place. And he just it with a stick. So these beings are like not your usual yogis. <laughs> We're talking about those that are really immersed in the absolute state. Yeah. So are they functioning? Well, yeah, but not according to any rules or laws of physics that we would recognize. But they obviously have the ability of speech and yeah. can get workers directed to what they Yeah, do. yeah. But he rarely spoke. It was sort of he'd grunt and people would know. I mean... Great officials and politicians Ah, millions of people, yeah, that's right, in the end, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, Prime Ministers and I think, who was it? The State Ministers. Yeah, businessmen. You know, they call it Darshan, to be in the presence of a great being, and it was very, there was no effort needed to meditate or anything, you were just coming into the presence of this great being and sit down and drop it into deep meditation. Mm. So that's our lineage. So he's the teacher of our teacher. That happened for us. So you're the, if you're here, then you're in the lineage too, uh -huh. which means that we're all connected uh -huh. to this, to that power. But, and, and I suppose the point is that when we go into the states of meditation, the states that we're connecting to are indistinguishable from the states that are shared by all within that realm. So that's a little bit of a... Um, so let's backtrack a bit. That's a little bit of a excursus around mind as a tool. 
mind as a force multiplier in the case of the miracles. I mean, they're actually utilizing some aspects of consciousness that are not available to most people. Uh, this is if you believe in all this. If you don't, then they're just nice stories. But, you know, does it matter? The mind likes to hear this because it's inspiring. And it also Well, what, yeah, it validates, I think, no, the, the experience, the practice of meditation validates the stories because you begin to understand, you see the truth, you experience the truth of the power of the state, let's just say that, without going into the miracles aspect. The power of the state is immediately evident to anyone that goes into it. When you approach the void, you feel the power of that state. And it's not your, there's no... It's not because I told you that. I mean, it's self-revealing. I feel like um, the some of the of all of the healings, me and a lot of people, everyone who does Reiki, are getting more and stronger and stronger. Is evidence that the miracles are occurring? Mm. Just ordinary people doing mm -hmm. these things. So when you talk about these kind of things, to me, it's such a simple leap mm. Mm. to know that this can be happening. That's right. You know, I've, I've um, done a person in England with pneumonia. Yeah, remotely. Just like that, you mm. know, and I do a lot of remote. Mm. A girl just the other week with went and had a stress test here, heart blockage, straight up to Sydney for... Um, to have an angiogram and a stent. I said, let me do my Reiki before mm. you go. Mm. She went up there, they looked in and went, everything's clear, everything's mm. perfect, your heart's perfect. So perfect. for me, it's just like, mm. these things... You know, it's possible. Anything's happen, you know. But it's not yeah. you doing the healing. No, it's, it's not just me. Nothing to do with me. We're just it's vehicles. The conduit. I yeah. feel like I'm a con you, the, the healers are conduits yep. for Absolutely. It is the same dynamic and the gurus are conduits as well. You know, we're all conduits. Mm. Mm. You know, whatever of, we're doing. Just a case mm. of tapping into it and doing mm. it. Yeah. Can do yeah, it's intention. Yeah. But the thing with these very high spiritual beings is they have such power mm. that basically once and it's not just a concept, but once they are accessing and indistinguishable from the universal principle, then for all intents and purposes, they are that principle in action. And I mean, but yeah, and the, so the stories, I mean, you can read about this on the internet, and we've got the books, but um, stopping locomotives and, you know, all those stories are there with the mind, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's um, then tempting for people to say, okay, well, I want to learn how to do that. It would be really good to be able to stop a locomotive with my mind. Um, but I don't think it works that way. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with it. Really. No. See, the very fact that you're saying, I want to be able to do that, is your guarantee that you're never, you're, while there is still I, then that's never going to happen. When these things happen, they're happening spontaneously around these people because 
Um, well, I mean, there is no why. They just happen. Yeah. Miracles happened. The more you just give yourself over, yeah. the more it happens. And the more you say, nothing to do with me, yeah. the more it happens. It's the same thing. Remember we talked last year, you weren't here, Lindell, but and, and Naomi, but we talked about surrender and grace. The surrender-grace dynamic, that's really what we're talking about at every point in these discussions. When we're talking about releasing, we're talking about surrender. When we talk about surrender, then that's when the grace flows and you enter the state. So it's all grace. And you can't get there through will. You get out of your own way. Yeah, you can't brute force. And the people that come and they say, I can't meditate, the first thing you say is, you're trying too hard. You're not surrendering. You're using effort, which is will, which is mind, which is limited, which is the barrier between where you are and where you want to be. Drop the effort. Surrender. And then, lo and behold, it's there. Stop judging whether your practice was good, bad, or Yeah, exactly. None of that. It is what it is. <laughs> None of that. And the more that you see, because this is where we come back to the egoic mind is so addicted to control that's its that's its fuel control domination conquest you know so in a meditative sense that the egoic mind would be saying uh, firstly why do I need to do this at all and that's probably the reason that a lot of people wouldn't meditate is because the egoic voice is saying, I don't like the idea of uh, going beyond my mind. That's threatening to the ego. That's very threatening. Or, um, and so when you're starting to meditate and the thoughts come in, the ego is the one that's going to hook, hook into the thoughts. And you'll have a memory of something and then you'll feel angry or whatever the emotional state is and all of that's taking you away from where you want to be. So the sooner in the process you can recognize the egoic thoughts and I know you're very good at this, you're always asking me questions about isn't that just the ego? And that's the key to it is you have to be fully on guard, really vigilant when the egoic thoughts come by you've got to really notice because if you're not careful they will hijack the mind and then they take you away from the state. I was actually listening to some Eckhart Tolle the other day. Yeah. You call him Tolle, don't you? Yeah. Is it Tolle? Or? Tolle, Tolle. Tolle. Yeah, you hear different people call him different things. He's yeah. German so it's probably, in Germany they'd probably say Tolle. Tolle. <laughs> thoughts are going, one way to deal with it is to just, ex instead of thinking, oh God, how do I meditate, how do I calm my mind, instead of trying to actually do it, just say, well, that's just where I am at the moment. Mm. And as soon as you say, well, that's just where my mind is at the moment, it just relaxes because you're actually there. Mm. You've gone back to that acceptance. Yeah. The, the, the acceptance, yeah. like, that's just where it is, so it sort of dissipates, mm. you know, because it's, it's nearly like being in this stillness, mm. because you just... My mind's just chatting. Yep. Yeah. So the egoic mind wants things to be other than what they are. Mm -hmm. The moment we can let that go, mm -hmm. 
and we're there. <laughs> yeah, it's wanting things to be different from what they are. Or wanting to hold on, clinging to the good, only wanting the good. Whinging because yeah. it's not that good anymore. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's really the, the skill of being a meditator is in having enough presence to notice the thoughts and when they're egoic to just be able to step back. They'll still, they'll st they may still be there, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is not to stop the thoughts. The th I mean, thoughts will begin to thin out anyway, because the power of the stillness becomes all-encompassing eventually. There's not a lot of thoughts. And it becomes your natural state. Yeah, so the new default. But in the meantime, I mean, if there are thoughts around, what's the thought? It's just a movement. Yeah. So can you be in the stillness and still just a bunch of go to work and do all your stuff, totally. but you still actually, but you just have to, you actually have that, that yeah. still, that yeah. feeling of yeah. peace. It's and more, your day is more effective. Yeah. You can have the, can retain the peace. I mean, we're talking now. Mm. Is there peace there? Well, so that answers the question. But it's also possible to talk and lose the peace. So what's the difference? You can more quickly bring... Something happens, you, you bring yourself back to that state of stillness more quickly as time goes. Mm. But what causes you to lose it? step back into my stillness with this and then it might be a bigger challenge, mm -hmm. you know, where, I don't know, we have just bigger challenges. There's so many levels, isn't there, of challenges and, I mean, the ultimate would be to be able to have your ultimate challenge of, say, you know, losing somebody special and to be able to be able to accept it and remain in peace mm -hmm. during that. But there's so many levels on any given day and you never know when that challenge is going to happen and that's where the real challenge is because well it's all in a lovely environment like this where we're all on the same wavelength it's easy mm. the challenge is then when you walk out the door and you're meeting people who you know you might have a that's very a, true a, a violent person come and grab you or something but see, isn't, isn't the point that the challenges are always going to be there because they are aspects of life that are unavoidable because we're living in a world of duality. Isn't the point, if you want to maintain the peace, the point is how you respond to the challenges and the control, as it were, or the surrender, is in the ability to not. You can address the challenge, but it's one thing to address it in a um, detached, um, effective way, 
and it's another thing to get caught into the emotion. Reactive. Yeah. So I think the key is not the avoidance of challenges. No. You can still, and this goes to your question, you know, how do I maintain my peace when I live in a world full of challenges? That really distills the question. And the answer is by just remaining in your peace. But always just remain in the peace. And as we say, I mean, as the state becomes the default. There is so much, you, get, you become so saturated in peace that in fact the challenges tend to be less anyway. See, there's another interesting phenomenon that occurs. Challenges in the external world are usually a reflection of some internal disconnect. The world is really a mirror, a reflection of your inner state. So the more challenges you're facing in your outer life, it's probably, could be, well, a correction or a signal to you that something within you has to change. Attitudes, beliefs, whatever, emotional blockages. But I find in my experience that more that I, if something happens that is a, a, an apparent challenge externally, the first thing I look to is my internal state. Because you can't engineer the external, but you can definitely re-engineer the internal state. The way that you view it may even be enough. Changing your attitude to something may be enough that the apparent challenge miraculously resolves. It's and, very mysterious. And you didn't do anything. And this is the, see, the egoic mind wishes to blame, wishes to say, I'd be fine if it wasn't for those challenges. That's egoic, actually. A better way to say it is, Okay, where is the resistance out there? See, I, the, the principle is that if you're fully aligned and in harmony, then pretty much everything flows. Now, there's one, ex and if, you're, if things are not flowing, then it's indicative of the fact you need to do more work on yourself. That's as a general rule. Now, there's one exception to that rule. Do you know what that is? When somebody else's fault. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, we'll let that pass. I'd say probably no. What do you think the one exception to that? that so the question is, the observation is that when your life's flowing smoothly, it's a sign that you're pretty in, in harmony. When life is full of obstacles, then there's some obstruction that needs to be addressed. Now, if, let's say that's, all, that's right in 97% uh, of cases. What's the other 3% of cases? So you are in harmony, but still there are obstacles. Karma? Yeah. That's karma. That's the iron law of karma, is that there is some past unfinished... And it doesn't necessarily have to be in this life. No. So that's another whole discussion which we won't do today, but I just wanted to acknowledge that because some people are going to say, well, there are some times when I really don't know what there is in me. You know, I've, I've looked deeply into myself and I'm really at ease with this situation and still there, it may be a physical sickness. I have a great diet, great lifestyle, you know, and still something's there. 
then the yogis would say, well, that's your karma. Or when, you know, like as a little child, you're abused or something. Right. That's not... That's Nothing you did. That was... Yeah, exactly. The, the so we'll save that for an, another week. But I just say this, that even... Because uh, it's not all bad news, because then you go away thinking, thinking, well, so that means I actually I'm not in control. Well, the truth is that you never were in control. So that's, that's the first thing. But the second thing is that if you're a meditator and even if bad stuff is going down, if you have the capacity to re-enter the state and take refuge within the peace, the love, the bliss, whatever that state is for you, then whatever's going on on the outside is going to be that much easier to bear. Until it works its way through and it passes, then at least you have the comfort of knowing that you have somewhere else to be other than with that. Which also helps stop creating more calm. Exactly. And that's where we get into the wheel of yeah. cause and effect at that level. Okay, so that's a pretty um, extensive talk there about... Let's review. We started off by talking about... Uh, Well, we experience that internal state of peace. We talked about how the mind becomes more powerful, that the mind is a tool that amplifies our capacity to be effective. We talked about tools and technology as metaphors for that. And then we went back to the idea of um, uh, the peacefulness within action, how to hold and maintain the state, um, how to take uh, control over the, or not control, but how to um, view external challenges, uh, where the work really needs to occur, and then finally in that very 3%, let's say, a minority of cases, in those circumstances that are not a product of your current state, what that is and some strategy for making that at least bearable. Okay? That's a pretty full discussion. Any questions at this stage? We're going to meditate now. So this is your opportunity to test everything that I've been saying, everything that you've been saying. Try this idea of surrender. See if you can move more quickly into the experience by less effort. Surrender, release. If you are going into a meditative state, see, feel what surrender feels like to you and go with that and then see what happens.